they're tuning into our nervous system. And sleep is that side effect of a calm, regulated nervous system. Sleep is a hot button topic in parenting. Between sleep training and sleep strategies, whether it's the cry it out method or the never let them cry approach, at the end of the day, what works best for you and your family is what matters the most. But regardless of what method you're planning to use, there is some basic biological, neurological, and psychological sleep information that can really help inform parents so that they can make educated choices when it comes to the sleep in their homes. In today's episode, I'm going to be digging into all of this with my guest, Eileen Henry. Eileen is the founder of Compassionate Sleep Solutions and the author of the book, Compassionate Sleep Solution, Calming the Cry. She is a Rye associate and has been working with families for nearly two decades, applying Rye principles to help thousands of parents create a compassionate sleep solution that is tailored to their unique family. We're going to start by covering what is happening developmentally and the role that attachment theory plays in a child's sleep. Then we're going to get into the nuts and bolts of what parents can do to help prepare their child for a peaceful night. So creating an environment conducive to sleep, both physically and emotionally. We'll also talk about deciphering the difference between our child's anxiety versus the fears that we are projecting onto them. And how fulfilling four basic needs throughout our child's day can make a huge difference when it comes time for bed. Children often need us to help them co-regulate, but they do not need us to rescue them. We're going to discuss how parents can identify the difference and how you can help instill confidence in your child to be able to fall asleep and then re-fall asleep, which is what happens after they inevitably wake up in the middle of the night on their own. And so here is my conversation with Eileen Henry. Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Bren, a clinical psychologist and mom of two. I've built a career dedicated to helping families find deep connections, build healthy relationships, repair attachment wounds, and raise kids who are healthy, secure, resilient, and kind. In this podcast, I've taken all of my clinical experience, current research on brain science and child psychology, and the insights I've gained on my own parenting journey, and distilled everything down into easy to understand and actionable parenting insights to help you understand the building blocks of children's social, emotional, and cognitive development, so you can tune out the noise and tune into your own authentic parenting voice with confidence and calm. This is Securely Attached. Hi, welcome to the episode. I'm so excited to introduce you all to Eileen Henry. She's an amazing sleep specialist and Rye associate. And if you listen to any of our episodes before this about Rye, you get a sense of maybe where her background is and what she's coming, where she's coming from. But I really wanted to give you, Eileen, a chance to tell us a little bit about your story and how you got here and how you got into the work that you do. Okay. Hi, everybody. Um, yes, I started this. Well, probably right when I had my first child, 19 years ago, and I quickly found out about Rye Resources for Infant Educators through a girlfriend, and I was struggling with sleep with my newborn, and I 
planned, I did not plan on doing family bed and I ended up with him in bed and no one was sleeping and the sun would go down and I would start to cry. And so I started working with my then teacher who became my Rye mentor when I uh, went and studied Rye and got my associateship in Rye. And she helped us. And I realized that first night I put my son in his crib, I think he was four or five months old, that I was projecting a lot onto him. I was projecting Mm -hmm. fear, uh, abandonment, that he was, I I said to my husband, I think he's scared. I think he's scared of the dark. And I was projecting all of this. And fortunately, he reflected back to me what I had said, and I realized it was me. That was about me. It wasn't. Oh, wow. And so I started this journey then. And after I became a Rye associate, uh, we saw in, God, this was mm, 17, yeah, 18 years ago. We saw in the Wall Street Journal, there was a woman Um, Jill Spivak doing sleep in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And she had like an eight week waiting period for people to talk to her. My husband was like, God, someone could get hurt. You need to (laughs) sleep. You're talking to people in your ride classes about sleep. So with his uh, encouragement, I started working with individuals, people in my class. And so I built compassionate sleep solutions based on uh, my lifetime struggle with getting the sleep I need and how I saw, wow, this is really going to affect my children if I don't do something that can support the whole family's sleep. My, my partner, my children, uh, the whole family that, um, and so it's grown through work yeah. with families all over the world. So I'm really lucky. That's so amazing. I can't, I send people to you all the time. Oh, like I you. literally, like you are the person who I always recommend people to um, when they're asking me about sleep struggles. And I, I talk about sleep struggles a little bit. You do. Um, especially in the context of separation anxiety. And that's, yes. I think we'll talk a lot about that today, about yes. how sleep is really about relationships. And so where the sleep and the relationships overlap, I feel like I've got something to share there. But when it comes to the nitty gritty, like the nuts and bolts of like getting your child to sleep, I'm saying go to a sleep specialist because they know sleep inside and out. Yes. And we're doing it in this very dynamic human experience of development. And that, that piece, how to fit in, like you said, you know, the left brain nuts and bolts of it, the structure, the form, the the details, that's one thing. But I think you and I both are mostly interested in the right brain, the relational piece, the emotional piece, the secure attachment piece, how to keep yes. all of that and still nurture sleep throughout development. And I think there's a, it's a really hot issue because there's, I think, a lot of fear among parents that there's one right way to do this. And if I don't follow that right way, I'm going to mess up my child. I'm going to destroy our attachment relationship or no one's ever going to sleep again because the only way to nurture my child's sleep and our relationship is to forego my own needs for sleep and that there's a way to do this where everybody's needs are accounted for and honored. I agree. 
There are, and, mm-hmm. and you know, what you bring up is, is interesting because I see it a lot um, in chat rooms, in uh, platforms that, you know, support parenting groups. And it's become such a polarized and hot topic that in some rooms they don't even allow people to talk about sleep. You know, wow. they've taken it off the board. So on one side is the straight, straight up, cry it out, put them in a room, put them in a crib, let them figure it out. And that is mm-hmm. really kind of a deal breaker for a lot of parents. And then the other mm-hmm. extreme is never let them struggle, never let them cry, bring them in, you know, fix their sleep all night. And that is a deal breaker for some parents who need to work or get up and function during the day. It was definitely a deal breaker for me. I couldn't be up parenting my child all night and be a functioning sane human during the day. Mm-hmm. Both of us suffered. Yes. And that's, I think the really important part is like, if, if both parties, I say both thinking mother and child, but really dads and other partners are involved in this process very much too. But really when I'm, you know, if all parties are not taken care of, and that might mean compromise and sacrifice on everybody's part a little bit, but this idea that like one has to be a martyr to honor the attachment relationship is actually, it's false. It is. That's not healthy attachment to me. That's mm-hmm. um, enmeshment. And, and, and the enmeshment part of development, there is an enmeshment part of development. I do believe mm-hmm. that newborn stage and, and they're in us and then they're on us. And that new uh, part of development where the, the baby doesn't know where we, they end and we begin. It's a very symbiotic state. But yes. if we carry on symbiosis past into the stage of development where a little bit of separateness can come in and then toddlerhood is about autonomy, if we're still doing mm-hmm. symbiosis and enmeshment, then oh, it gets really, it gets really challenging. It gets really challenging. So there is a respectful uh, way for everyone to get sleep. It does take some struggle. And in Rye, Mm -hmm. we feel like a relationship with struggle is a a worthy pursuit. Yes. For growth and change, yeah. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like how, okay, how might someone who comes at sleep from a Rye perspective or a, a... sort of a, not attachment parenting perspective, but a, a, the theory of attachment, the yeah. biological, you know, theory of attachment. Um, how does that maybe differ from what might be mainstream sleep strategies or, you know, like the idea of sleep training versus sleep learning, for example. Right. right. So in learning, you know, one thing we, I think this, this idea of struggle and, and challenge is embraced and right because we are watching newborn, the infant from the beginning of life as they're learning skills. For example, that first gross motor move of back to side, to belly, to side, to back, that how that unfolds so differently in each child and how long it mm-hmm. takes. And we watch and experience and support our infants 
in the struggle that it takes. Sometimes, you know, and sometimes in struggle, we do fix it for them. Well, it, it's too much for them. We'll pick them up. We'll hold them, give them a break and then put them back down, you know? And so I, the, there's, there is a link with that gross motor development and sleep development. There seems to be, they influence each other. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it first, that rolling, that new, new stage of learning how to roll from back to belly, it's interruptive to sleep. And then it facilitates sleep because they can move and change positions and get in a more comfortable position. I mean, if someone strapped me into just one position in the night, I would have a hard time sleeping. So that frequent yeah. movement really promotes sleep. So allowing infants and the young child to learn sleep as opposed to sleep training is really supporting them in struggle. And sometimes that's stepping back and listening and waiting and support mm -hmm. struggle in that way. And sometimes it's stepping forward and intervening. And when the struggle gets too much for them. So what I do is, is work with parents on discerning struggle from suffering and dysregulation. Because ah. anything that sounds like suffering and dysregulation, we're always going to go towards that and help them co-regulate, which is something you um, address often so beautifully and succinctly how you talk about that on your posts. I love the way you address uh, co-regulation, self-regulation, co-regulation. It's a dance we're doing as parents for yeah. Um, probably a lifetime because we're, yeah. we're relational animals. <laughs> we are. We're so, we're so connected and our, and our, actually our nervous systems are communicating to each other yes. through our regulation and dysregulation, right? Like we're built to communicate in that way without, without words, obviously words help, yeah. but they're not necessary. <laughs> and like the, you know, whether it's sleep or it's learning a new skill or it's yes. separating to go to school or whatever it is like you know that that what you just described that distinction between struggle and suffering and being an attuned parent who can distinguish and tolerate those two things so i need to know as a parent one what the difference between struggle and suffering is in my child and what that looks like and then i need to know that I have to have the skills to tolerate the struggle yes, because that's healthy. That, that builds resilience. That gives a child confidence when they can move through struggle on their own with our close support, but not solving it for them. Yes. On the other hand, when our children are suffering, we need to be able to distinguish those two things and respond attuned and swiftly to the suffering and get in there and be their external nervous system for them. Yes. Yes. And that the unfolding of that, it, that's a, a piece of development that lasts for, I mean, it comes online. I think the uh, self-soothing mechanism comes online it, it, it different in every brain. And this is why I like to work with parents in a way that they're tuning into their particular child because they're the expert on their child. You are the expert on your children. And so giving them a way to hone their intuition and their, their um, 
instincts on their own child. And mm-hmm. so um, the self-soothing mechanism does come online in the brain or three, four months. It, it, it coincides with the social smile when they start to open their fists. Like there's a, there's a change that happens with the baby that they look at us and realize, oh, hey, they kind of light up. We all know that moment, you know, where yeah. a child goes from, it's like this blooming that happens in the child. They recognize and they, yeah. And I think that's kind of where attachment starts to begin, frankly, because that's the space. I talk about this a lot when I talk about the attachment relationship, that when a child's born, they're merged. They're one with the mother. They, yeah. they don't know where they end and the mom begins. Yeah. But as we naturally mess up from time to time and misattune to our child, it's in that, that creates some space, some awareness. Hey, I'm a different person than you. You're not yeah. getting what I need right now. Yeah. And that space then becomes the space in which the relationship happens. That is the beginning of the attachment relationship. And the quality of that relationship can be very different, but that that is the attachment relationship, whether it's secure or insecure, it's still that, that is the attachment relationship. And it starts around that age when a kid kind of like, oh, whoa, we're two different people. We're in relationship with one another. Yeah. And they start their, their, that really scientific little brain of probability of outcome versus, you know, the, the cause and effect. And there's no greater effect that our children have on us than what their cry causes in yeah. our bodies to respond. So we want to remain responsive, reliable, and trustworthy. And yet, as the child develops and becomes more and more capable and competent, we're stepping back and fixing less. So this self-soothing mechanism comes online. It comes to stability at about six months. And um, Alan Shore's work, I'm sure you're familiar with Alan Shore at UCLA. He's a big mm-hmm. fan of Rye and we're a big fan of Alan's. And he, he discusses this in the form of regulatory theory that it's six months, infants are so relational. They understand the tone of language. They're tuned in. So they're not understanding words yet, but the tone of language gives them a lot of information, facial tone, facial expression, body tone, when we put the infant on our body Mm -hmm. and they can feel, are we tense? Are we worried? Are we anxious? Are we confident? Are we relaxed? They're tuning into our nervous system. And sleep is that side effect of a calm, regulated nervous system. Oh my God, I love that. I love sleep is a side effect of a calm and regulated nervous system. Like that could not be more true for for everybody. Think about when we go to sleep. You can't sleep when you're revved up. You have to have that kind of, literally they call the parasympathetic nervous response, rest, digest. Yes, they're married. Mm-hmm. The rest and digest the nervous system. And, you know, even the, the family, I look at the, the home as, you know, there's the individual parasympathetic nervous system. And then there's a bigger umbrella of the home and that sanctuary, the sleep sanctuary, what holds our sleep where we go into the subconscious and the unconscious at night, we create this beautiful holding place. Mm -hmm. And so we want to create a physical environment and an emotional environment 
that's conducive to sleep, that all, you know, the dog can relax, the cat can relax, every animal, every limbic brain animal in the house mm-hmm. can just relax and let sleep take them into that. Sleep. How do we do that? That is a question I imagine everybody who's listening right now is like, okay, but yeah, but how, what, how do we do that? Yes. So part of it, I think like the, the so the nuts and bolts of it is creating the physical environment. That's something that we put intention and care and regard into our physical environment. And there are great, all kinds of great ideas of, you know, how we create a, an adult space. What, what is the adult space like that sleep happens? And what is the child space like? Um, I am a fan of cribs. I like cribs. I like a, a container. Um, I've found that children, infants, toddlers really love that space because mm-hmm. it's smaller and it's contained. And yeah, like it's I, cozy. It's cozy. And so how we approach that physical environment and what we put emotionally into that container makes a big difference. So I tell families, you know, if you look at a crib and you see, oh, that's a prison, that's, you know, you have a really negative connotation on the crib. I'm like, yeah, you don't want to put your baby, (laughs) you're not going to want to put your baby in that space. That makes me think about when you were talking at the very beginning of the episode about how you noticed how you, upon reflecting on your own relationship with your child's sleep, you were realizing you were projecting a lot of your fears onto their experience. And I almost feel like that's what happens sometimes with cribs or with the environment. We we also project our feelings onto the environment yes, and that can distort it for us. Yes. So one way I work with families on creating the physical environment is that we want it to be a loving, holding place. So it's the, the structure, the container has is infused with love, relaxation, uh, quality connection, um, ritual is also an interesting mm. thing that it creates both um, to me, ritual really sets up the physical environment and the emotional environment. And so I like ritual as part of the process that the child can recognize. In Rye, we talk about this in forms of the routine of the day, that there's an inherent structure in the routine of the day. And it starts after wake up and it meets the, it's when, where, and how the basic needs are met throughout the day. So the four basic needs that we're looking at in regards to sleep are really the, the four needs of, of well-being. Nutrition, that's one leg of the stool. Sleep is a leg of the stool. Mm-hmm. Our emotional, mental well-being, what you work with, that's definitely a part of the stool. So quality relationship with the self and with others in our world. And quality downtime, which in Rye, we are devotees of play. Because the child's, uh, the child is solely devoted to that for pretty much a decade. The first decade of life is about play 
uh, because they're learning how to learn through their play. So that four-legged stool, our well-being rests on top of it. And when, so you've yeah. got you've got quality relationships. Yes, primary with oneself and others. Yes, you've got quality sleep, quality nutrition, and quality time that is spent in 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 free play. Free play. And I think it's so important. This is really interesting because basically what you're saying is for sleep to be able to take place in a rich and fulfilling and satisfying way for everybody. Yes. Um, for a child to really be able to let go when it comes to sleep. You're not actually talking just about nighttime and sleep time. You're really talking about the entire day because for a child to let go at the end of the day, they need all of these four legs of their stool or buckets or whatever you're going to call them. They need to be sturdy. The buckets need to be full. You know, that has to be tended to for a child, for for a parent to have a reasonable expectation of a child to then be able to let go at the end of the day. Yes. The best sleep really does happen in stillness, silence, and solitude. Mm. And that's not necessarily loneliness no. or fearfulness. No. That would be a projection. If we catch yes. ourselves thinking solitude is lonely, yes. solitude is scary, right. um, we are going to have our own anxious response to letting our child be in that solitude. But if we think of solitude as peacefulness and stillness and quality time with one's self, we are going to feel much more confident when we lay our child down, even if they protest. I would imagine even yeah. if a child protests and we are confident that we're doing something okay by them, that they're, we're not banishing them to a night full of fearful aloneness. No, we show up. So what I, I tell parents the difference, you know, what we're working on really is the difference. Parents come to me a lot of times and I, I say, oh, you haven't done anything wrong. You've just done it really a little too right for a little too long. <laughs> like you're a sleep rock. You're a sleep rock. You know, the child to sleep, they have to have your, you're the rock of that. They have to either be connected to you, touching you, holding you. You're in bed. You're the physical kind of um, the, the body boundary of sleep. And I said, so what we're going to do is work from being a sleep rock to a touchstone. We're always going to be a touchstone for the child. So if it does get too much for them, if they have separation anxiety, bad dreams, all of those interruptions, what the biggest interruption really is called confusional arousal. And it's that busy, growing, developing brain, practicing skills in the night. I have toddlers. I have two toddlers who just get up right now and they just do laps. They just walk laps around their crib at night. Now, at first, they'd walk laps and and get upset and cry. And so as the parents came and touched the became that touchstone and just reminded them more sleep need to happen. Now they just get up and walk around for 30 minutes and then lay down and go to sleep. Can you explain like the brain science behind that? What's going on for what is confusional confusional so, awareness? Yeah. So confusional arousal is the best thing that I can relate it to in adults, that what happens is like for the, the adult to happen, this happens when they're doing things like Ambien. So Ambien is mm-hmm. the brain is not really sleeping when uh. one is on Ambien. And they can 
come to at the stove with a pot of boiling water, people will get in cars and drive. And then uh-huh. they'll come to and it's like, what? How did I get here? So confusional arousal in the child is they don't go into a state of paralysis when they sleep. Their bodies are fully moving. What they're learning during the day as far as gross motor, language, all the rapid learning that's happened during the day, that brain is practicing all of that at night. So the child can be crawling in their sleep or in light sleep, and then their head gets pressed into the corner of the crib, and they wake up, and there's the corner of the crib, just boom, they're right pressed up into it, and it kind of freaks them out. Oh, yeah. And they scream. I, yeah. Or they're walking. It's disorienting. It's very disorienting. Or they're standing, and they wake up, and they're standing up, and they wake up, and it's like, oh! And they kind of surprise themselves and fall back Mm -hmm. and maybe hit their head on the crib or something. So all kinds of things. And and what parents will say is, I think my child's having night terrors. And and it's usually night terrors are a thing. And it seems to be one of the genetic things that happens. If either parent had night terrors, talked in their sleep or walked in their sleep, that can be a genetic, Uh something passed on. But usually in little young people, the little babies, babies, beginning toddlers and toddlers, um, what can look like night terrors is actually confusional arousal. They just, they're practicing something. They're, the brain is very busy at night and they startle themselves awake. That would make sense why that would also um, potentially make a child a little anxious about going to bed at night if they keep having those kind of jarring experiences so th- at nighttime. So the beauty of them, of those experiences are they're completely forgotten. Really? Yeah. The child has no memory of that. But the That's parent amazing. does. <laughs> we get so, so freaked so out, here right? There is the key. The parent holds that memory in the body and the brain and the self. And we can kind of go into the night going, oh, here we go. Is it going to happen? Is that going to happen? Where a lot of times the the action that we need to take is just to go in, touch. Touch is really important to, as you know, as a um, co-regulator, loving Mm -hmm. touch, holding, voice, being with the child, just being present. And they go back to sleep and they have no recollection of it at all. And so that's interesting too, because, so this goes back to the idea of like our nervous systems are always talking. Yes. And so, and and as the parent, if we're holding the anxiety of these events and we are anticipating these anxious for us things happening in the night, how can we as parents, when we do go in, when we do hear our child startle and scream and cry in the middle of the night and we wake up, you know, frazzled, What's the most important thing we can do before we go into that room to help our own kid? You know, I think settling our own nervous system as much as we can, because it's kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's wild what we're doing as parents. I tell this to parents, you know, it's, I, I, I recognize the, um, it sounds kind of crazy. We're supposed to feel into the child and actually feel along with them. When they're distressed, mm-hmm. we're supposed to tune into that and have a little bit of 
co-distress with them, you know, co-fear, co-anger. You know, we get in there and, and we feel a little bit with them, but then we're holding a bigger, stronger, regulated container. So if they need to fall apart, we give them the space to really have an emotional release, to cry, to get upset, to get angry. We're holding a stronger adult mature container for the child to have the full release. Mm -hmm. And so as we go in, it can help. It helps. I find it helps parents tremendously to say, Oh, okay. This is that brain activity. Wow. My child is developing just like they're supposed to. Their brain is fully functioning and practicing in the night. This is great. So when they see what happens in the crib, it doesn't freak them out as much. It's, oh, this is normal. And so if we can go to the child with a sense of, this is normal, this happens. It's, I'm Mm -hmm. here for you. I'm here to support you through this. And that's true for... um you know, this this brain activity that we're talking about. But I think it's also true for just natural night wakings. Yes. Even when it's not in the state of confusion, right? Like oh, yeah. I think far more commonly we're going in because a child woke up and they can't get themselves to fall back asleep on their own. And they need us to come in and help co-regulate, but they don't need us to rescue them. Like exactly. what's the subtle difference there? So the subtle difference between, I call it the efforts. We just say, ah, effort. I'm going to fix it. <laughs> fix it. Just fix oh, it. Been there. Get totally been there. Back to sleep. And so if you think about a lot, as you know, of what, when you're working with families and, and parents and child, there's, you know, our brains are really incompatible. You know, they're, they're having a completely different experience than our grown up brain. So, when we go towards the child with this idea of, um, I mean, our, our brain really, and I tell parents this all the time, if you think of it, yeah, our brain is doing the most adaptive thing, which is fix it and just get back to sleep. We need mm-hmm. to get back to sleep. Whereas for the child, the most adaptive thing is just to, let this experience happen unfold and they get tired and go back to sleep. Um, Human beings, this was an interesting piece of research that came out, God, probably 10 years ago now. And it was written up in all publications in science magazines, health magazines. I mean, you could see it everywhere. If you were on an airplane, you'd open up the airplane magazine and there was an article about it. And it was this, the, the idea that, Eight consecutive hours of sleep in the night it was a myth that it really wasn't how human beings evolved and functioned for most of our time on earth. And it went back, they went back in literature, both medical literature, poetry, every type of writings. And humans talked about two sleep periods in the night. And mm. you, they, they would sleep and wake up. Inventors wrote about this all the time. They would wake up in the night. Benjamin Franklin wrote about it. Thomas Edison Edison wrote about it. They'd wake up to candlelight, right? So it was a very diffused, quiet light. They'd wake up. They would read. They would write. Couples would talk in bed or make love. It was 
there was just all of this information about these two sleep periods. And they'd wake up for up to an hour or an hour and a half at night and then go back to sleep. So when the Industrial Revolution came along, the, it, there were some things that happened in society. The advent of the light bulb, especially outdoor lighting, when we started mm-hmm. to light up our streets, the whole paradigm of sleep changed. And we started to do this eight-hour consecutive sleep to fit with our work schedules and our work lives. <laughs> but we watch babies in cribs. They don't have that. They will wake up for an infant or a toddler and parents go back and watch monitors. I'm not really for the highly surveillanced crib, you know, with with <laughs> monitors and they're playing back. But I've learned some interesting things over the years that parents will go back and play and watch the crib in the night. And their child just sat up in the corner for 30 minutes, just sat there. Eyes open, just sitting there, looking around uh-huh. the they might start playing with their toes or their hands. A toddler will get up and walk around. I have two toddlers right now who are doing a, you know, a walking tour of the crib for 45 minutes every night. And yeah. then just finally they went in because at first it was a lot of crying coming and they'd go and sit and be with them and reassure them. And now they're just walking around their crib and then they lay down and go to sleep. It's just not that big of a deal. And the parents don't hear about it because the child has become skilled at falling and refalling to sleep on their own. They don't need someone to come and fix it. They just have that experience and then they fall over and go back to sleep. It becomes no big yeah. What a confident child to be able to trust themselves to do that, to wake up and not panic. Yeah. Um, how, so, okay. If you're going to walk away from this episode with a few sort of hard tangible strategies for how to instill that kind of confidence in your own child to feel safe enough letting go, being alone in the stillness, being in solitude, content, playing with their toes or whatever until they drift back to sleep. How do we help our kids get there? Because I feel like that would be such a reassuring place for parents to know their kids can, can exist. Right. So Sarah, you said something when we started that was really um, important that there's no missed window of opportunity. Like children can learn this at any stage, right? Mm. So if we're starting with infants, we're starting a little differently than if someone starts in toddlerhood because there's a little more verbal acquisition. So as infants, we're creating this, again, this physical environment and the emotions that we bring to that space. Um, They do need to learn the developmental skill of falling as related to sleep. And it is a physical sensation that we know as adults, that feeling when sleep, the sleep drive literally takes you and you fall into your bed, you know, and depending on the adult's experience with sleep, um, that can either be a peaceful falling or a, oh, what is tonight going to bring? Am I going to sleep through the night? If there's any anxiety, Mm -hmm. it's not as peaceful as for someone who has sleep managed where they sleep all night. Like that's one of the most beautiful moments of the day. You know, you get in bed and you get in your sheets and fall into sleep. So children can have that same feeling about it. And we have to nurture that 
in them. So I don't look at sleep as a problem to be fixed. It really is a skill to be nurtured. And so how we do that is allowing them to fall on that still surface. It's disorienting for them because it stimulates their moral reflex. So if it's a young baby whose moral reflex is just newly integrated into the nervous system, they need a little help Mm -hmm. with that. So we might have to pick them up, hold them or put our hand on them, touch, talk, being present, stepping away, coming close. And so the, the process is really understanding what cries or struggle that we can step back. And sometimes stepping back is just in the room with the child. We're staying present. We're just stepping away from the crib. And then we come close when it gets too much for them. And we might have to pick them up a little bit and soothe them. I am for picking up babies and toddlers. If they're really Mm -hmm. dysregulated, we pick them up and hold them and rock them a little bit. Co-regulate. Yeah, we are co-regulating, swaying, gentle rocking, not the ball bouncing. Ball bouncing is interesting. It's become a thing since I've been doing this. Really, the exercise, you know, the yoga ball, I use one at my desk to sit on. Uh, the bouncing babies, it, it's, it's a movement that the child can't replicate themselves without mm. waking up the system too much because they start to pump the, the pelvis in an effort to try to get that bouncy ball feeling going. And yeah. so gentle swaying, the child can replicate. All the things that we soothe children with, they can replicate. Humming, they hum to themselves. Mm-hmm. They touch a lovey. They touch the side of the crib. They'll sometimes touch their own little sleep sack or jammies. Um, tactile, they'll hum to themselves. They'll rock their heads back and forth in a sense of rocking the self. So we want to use these methods to help soothe without fixing the falling. And that, that mm-hmm. initial learning um, takes a little while, but it happens pretty quickly because they're smart. The mattress catches them a hundred percent of the time when they fall. It's, yes. it's, it's in, on a sensation level, which is sensory. The child is having this sensory experience on a sensory level. It really is that simple. They have to learn how to fall and that that mattress is so reliable. It catches them. Mm-hmm. And it just takes a few times for them to learn that and they can relax into the mattress and let it catch them. It's like exposure therapy. It is. They have to, they I, have to experience the fearful yeah. thing. And we can be close by helping them. We yeah. can be close by supporting them in that with touch, our voice, our presence. And when the struggle is a low level struggle, I recommend that we do we step away and let that struggle happen without us right up next to them that we can Mm -hmm. be supporting them from the next room especially if the child is older and understands object permanence that when we Mm -hmm. step out of the room we don't we don't fall into a void either we don't just disappear because that's never happened to the child so they're not in there making up an abandonment scenario. Right. And that idea that like we come back. Yes. We don't 
we can't come back if we never leave. Right. <laughs> we have to be able to separate to be able to come back and that reassures the child that being alone is safe because my caregiver always comes back. So there's, there's this like kind of need to separate in order to reassure them that they're with us. Yes. I thought about this the other day. I was watching a movie with my children and then the first part of the movie, there's a narrator And he says his favorite place on the planet is the arrivals at Heathrow. He goes to the arrivals and there's scene after scene of loved ones being reunited. I have chills all all over. I have goosebumps all over my body right now thinking of that moment. That's the child's experience every time our face pops over the side of the crib. It's like the arrivals at the airport. Hey, <laughs> there you so go. Lovely. It's so And that only happens in separateness. And then we mm-hmm. come back together. We do that how many times a day? So it's morning, nap. If they have two naps, nighttime, we are doing that five, six times a day, coming to the side of the crib and saying, hey. And we're coming to say, hey, it's either more time to sleep or hey, let's get up and start this day. Yeah. let's get- And we do it, but our energy in that moment is important too. Right? Oh, it's so important. It's so important. And there's nothing like that joy of reuniting after a nice long nap, right? Yeah. In the middle of the day, yeah. we start to kind of miss them. And then yeah. I mean, we go to them and it's just this joyful reuniting. That, that deepens the bond and the attachment. And it's... it 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 often, it gets missed is really a beautiful mm-hmm. moment in our relationships with our children of that reunion yeah. moment. Well, I feel like we could talk about this forever and maybe we'll have to have you back and you can reunite with us again and <laughs> you can come, you can separate and then come back. Maybe we could do an episode. I think it would be nice to do one even just on the toddler aspect of sleep because yeah. I think this one really beautifully talked about sort of infancy and some of these sort of lifelong yes. things, but really it's different. I think when you have your, you're helping your infant learn to sleep and separate versus when you're helping an older child. Yeah. 10 months on, they're really ready to be a part of their own solution. And how confidence building and empowering that would be for them to be a part of that. Yeah. Okay, so good. Come back. We'll talk all about that. I'm happy to come back and talk about toddler sleep. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here. I'm going to, can you share how people can get in touch with you or learn more about what you are doing in the sleep world? Yes. So um, I am, as I mentioned before, I'm a Rye Associate, uh, Resources for Infant Educators. And so there is some stuff on the Rye uh, Foundation website. I think there's a couple of, workshops like this that I did, recordings that you can access on their YouTube. You can reach me at my website, CompassionateSleepSolutions.com. And I'm also on Instagram and Facebook. Um, So you can reach me any of those ways. But my contact information is all on my website, Compassionate Sleep Solutions. Yes. And and that's your handle on Instagram as well. Yes. Compassionate Sleep Solutions or Compassionate Sleep. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, we'll we'll tag all of it in the show notes so that everybody can get a link directly to both Eileen's website and her Instagram and Facebook pages so you can follow along because the stuff she writes about is beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here and I can't wait to have you back. I'd love to be back. Wonderful. Bye, Sarah. Bye. Sleep isn't a problem to be fixed. It's a skill to be nurtured. I love that. It is such a powerful way to reframe our mindset. Sleep, or lack thereof, can be one of the most frustrating and trying experiences that parents face early on. And there is so much pressure to get it right. I really hope this episode helps you to feel more confident when it comes to helping your child learn the skill of falling asleep. I'm going to be doing another episode in the future geared specifically towards helping toddlers with sleep. But in the meantime, if you're interested in that topic, be sure to check out my website, drsarahbren.com, where you can find my free toddler sleep workbook. It offers seven concrete strategies that you can use to turn your sleep struggles into solutions. So that's drsarahbren.com to access this guide and so much more. As always, don't forget to follow, like, and rate the podcast. Truly, the reviews make such a big difference. So thank you to those who have done that. I really appreciate it. And you can always find me on Instagram at Securely Attached Podcast. If you comment on the episode post for this episode, you can let me know what you thought about this conversation. I'd really love to hear from you. Thanks for listening, and don't be a stranger. <laughs>